You're listening to the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast, a conversation between audience and artists intended to demystify the classical music and opera art form. If you haven't already, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast. It's available via Spotify and Audioboom. That way, you'll hear about the latest podcasts as they become available. Be sure to follow Thoroughly Good on Twitter or on Facebook, and you'll find the blog at thoroughlygood.me. Podcast 57 features a bumper crop of contributors who, combined, celebrate the opening of a concert venue close to where I live in south-east London. Croydon's Fairfield Halls is the same distance from my home in Lewisham as the Royal Festival Hall is in central London, and they are, in design terms, almost carbon copies of each other. That's important, because between you and me, and a whole army of musicians who you'll also hear from in this podcast, it Fairfield Halls has a defining characteristic which makes it ever so slightly better than the Festival Hall. It has a cracking acoustic. It's not a competition. I'm a big fan of the Festival Hall too, but actually I wonder whether Fairfield Halls might just have the edge. It's recently gone through a bit of a refurbishment. Closed for a few years, funded by Croydon Council to the tune of £30 million, Fairfield has used the money to extract all of that nasty asbestos stuff that was used in the construction in the early 1960s. It's opened up the foyer, replastered the walls, updated the backstage areas, replaced the concert hall seating, and in general, just let the sharp lines and original features from the 1960s shine out like a wine glass glinting in the sunlight. It is a joyous space to be in, like a mini Southbank centre at the end of a 20 minute tram journey. The place is airy, welcoming, and as you'll hear later, has that delightful new car smell to boot. What you'll also hear in this podcast is a collection of interviews all captured in the space of a couple of hours on the first day of rehearsals and the day before the venue stages its first concert given by London Mozart players, its resident orchestra. Expect to hear people on the brink of the completion of an important project, all of them talking from different personal perspectives. You will need to write this stuff down, probably best to get a notepad and pen. You'll hear from the person who runs the London Mozart Players describing what it's like for the orchestra to be rehearsing in their home venue once more while the final bits and bobs are done to make the plays ready for the public. You'll also hear how that same orchestra saved itself from the brink of financial hardship thanks to the energy of its own players. And you'll hear from Thoroughly Good podcast veteran and LMP conductor Howard Shelley about what's special conducting in the concert hall, uh, plus some reflections from outgoing orchestral manager David Wilson. Fairfield's chief Neil Chandler provides a tour of the refurbished venue and to conclude LMP associate conductor Hilary Devan Wetton and composer Alex Wolfe talk about the latter's commission for the opening gala concert and make some pertinent observations about music education. I did say it was a bumper crop of contributors. These introductions, long as they are, are always intended to contextualise the experience of capturing each podcast episode. So it's worth pointing out, before all of this gets underway, why I wanted to make this. 
Fairfield Halls is a special place. It's not primarily a classical music destination. It's a venue that encompasses all manner of different entertainments, and I like that. It has a warmth about it that distinguishes it from its grander, comparatively overbearing siblings in the centre of London, and therein lies its charm. And whether it's projection, willful thinking, or just the way they actually appeared in the interviews, every single one of these contributors articulates the necessary passion and dedication such an arts venue inspires as to make visiting there a complete no-brainer. This podcast was recorded on Tuesday, the 17th of September, 2019. I'm Julia de Brule. I'm the executive director of the London Mozart Players and also the co-principal cellist. And I've been here for 30 years as a cellist. How is that possible if you're only 45? Oh, well, that's just how I look, isn't it? (laughs) I also have four children, but there we go. It's amazing. Uh, What is it like to be back here now? It's fantastic. And um, I've been spending about the last year putting out positive, you know, messages and thoughts to everybody because everybody's doubted that this place would ever open again. I kept saying, you wait, and it's actually happened, and it is fantastic. It's I was going to say it's fantastic for the people of Croydon because actually it's been opened in a new way and I feel that the, all the cultural scene in Croydon now feel as though they own this hall and I think that's why it will thrive. Uh, yeah, I, I get that feeling that there is a community sense here uh, in a way that perhaps, and this is no negative comment on other halls in London, but but it feels as though people do coalesce around this building. There's one incredible person which I need to mention, and that is Paula Murray. And she came in as as the sort of, I can't even remember her title actually, sort of an artistic director in the council. And she made sure that while this place was closed, she made contact with every cultural group there was. She brought them all together. She got us talking, got us sort of cross-collaborating. So we did the most extraordinary um, performances with Indian singers, with Asian um, singers with um, Afrobeat artists and she found us places to perform so now when this opens we're all coming home to this place and this place will really represent Croydon as well as bringing in great stars from outside Are you a little bit nervous today? I'm anxious because there are so many different components to everything that's going on and it isn't just doing a rehearsal you know, there's a lot to manage what are those components? I used to work in orchestral management like mm. hundreds of years ago when I was thinner. Uh, but I'm interested in knowing what some of those components are. What do you have to think about on a day like today? Well, the thing is, everybody's going to come to me and ask me what I think about everything. When we arrived this morning, the chairs were still wrapped in plastic. The music stands were still in boxes. <laughs> so before we could even start, all of that had to had to be unwrapped. We had all the musicians arriving, they couldn't even find their way in yet because there's still a lot going on. Um, But the hall is looking wonderful and um, is absolutely ready for tomorrow's concert. Uh, What do you, given that you've played in the orchestra for 30 years, how does the, um, that's all great ambience by the way, I don't mind about that. Uh, What do you see as the main differences now that it's sort of almost finished off? 
The main difference is in our orchestra, no, in, in the, the hall. hall. In the hall, that what they've done, they've been very, very careful not to touch the acoustic because this is one of the finest acoustics in the country. They've just done a big refurb on it and um, all new lighting and just actually taking it back to the 1960s when it was first built, to all the glory and splendour, you know, what it looked like when it first opened. What is it like to play here? Fantastic. It's interesting because it's the same size as the Festival Hall, but because of the, the shape of it and the fact that the balcony comes over quite a long way, it feels quite a compact hall. And whether you're one or whether you're 50 on stage, it actually feels really comfortable to play. Right. Uh, I understand from other people that I've spoken to, that, and I hadn't realised this, that actually uh, the fact that LMP has reached 70 years is a big deal. It's had some challenges recently. People have spoken very warmly about the efforts that you um, took in order to bring it back to life or save it from the brink. Is that? Am I over-flattering you? I only heard that today. So, when we were at that point, at that brink point, the players of this orchestra said, our orchestra cannot finish, it has to go on. And we literally took hold of the orchestra. We worked like crazy. There was a team of us, we put together a team of directors of the orchestra and we worked every hour that there was. We, we connected with everybody you connect, could connect with. We, just, we looked after everything we did and we just we built up the concert. So it is really thriving. And, it, and it's particularly wonderful, um, this concert tomorrow night, because um, Gerard Corsted is conducting the Beethoven Symphony and he was with us almost to the end when the orchestra was right on that brink and to be able to bring him back now and here we have the orchestra in fantastic form it's a, a really special moment I don't want to dwell but I I'm inevitably I sort of feel I need to know what that brink was mm. I mean how how much of a brink was it what was it so all the funding was removed from the orchestra so we had absolutely no way of paying anyone. We were very lucky because there were two members of the management team, um, David Wilson, who was actually just retired in this last week, um, and one other intern girl who actually were the only people in position. And everybody worked for either nothing or virtually nothing in order to make this really thrive. How long did it take to turn around? Um, within about a year, we were seeing really great results. And now we've got a really full diary. <laughs> um, I mean, obviously, as you say, it's not one person; uh, it's a group of people. But what what do you think everybody drew on? What was it that motivated them to make that happen? Because the, the story you tell is sort of very, inevitably, very swift and very transformational. But but I can see that for a small, intimate group, that would be incredibly challenging. I'm wondering what motivated them. I think the biggest thing that motivated our orchestra to thrive is the fact that we love playing together. When anybody turns up for an LMP rehearsal, we, we are genuinely so glad to be here. We love making music together. So at all costs, that's what we're going to do. Hi. Hello. Have a nice rehearsal. Yeah, okay. Yes, yes. When was the last time we met? Don't worry, don't worry. I came to your house somewhere. Oh my god. And I came to your music room and you talked me through Mozart. Thank you. Right. Okay. And it's the most popular podcast I do. Really? Oh, that's nice to hear. Yes, yes, yes. That's very nice. I think I'm speaking to you. London Mozart Players was for many years 
the um, the in-house orchestra here, the resident orchestra. So I've given many concerts here, but I first played here when I was a student at the Royal College of Music in London. I remember playing a recital here with a, a sonatina by Herbert Howells, which he'd actually written um, for my wife. Uh, but I performed it on this occasion, and he came to the concert. He was a very old man by then, but a wonderful composer, and it was very so touching. Soon, that soon, soon after it, um, it opened? Had been, yeah, yes. Because it, what it opened in '53 or something was I it? I thought it was '62. Oh, 62. I thought it was '62. I could that, be wrong about that. Festival Hall was '51, wasn't it? I uh, well, think. maybe I've got my dates wrong. No, no, okay. you're you're probably right. I know this was built afterwards. Out of boroughs a bit better. It's also uh, London Mozart Players' 70th anniversary concert tomorrow. Yes. Not, uh, as a, uh, in addition to being the opening concert for Fairfield Halls, um, when did you first start working with LMP? I started. I don't when, mean a year. I mean, you know. I'm well, I know. I'm. I mean, I'm 70 next year. We're incredibly close. Our births, so to speak. They were born in 49. I was born in 50. I married in 25, uh, at the age of 25 in 1975, and that was the first time I worked with the orchestra with Harry Black, who was the founder. And I've worked with them ever since. So I've been married as long as I have uh, been working with the LMP. And it's, uh, working with an orchestra can sometimes be a bit like a marriage, you know. You have to be careful that you don't get boring to your partner, you know. Some of the things that seem charming <laughs> at the beginning of 45 years can, can go a little sour if you're not careful. Um, especially okay. when you're in a, especially in a position of a conductor to an orchestra because... Um, Is that how it feels? I mean, is it, I mean, I know well, that it, you're joking about that, but is there, it, is no, there, there that kind I mean, of No, war? it happens with orchestras, and I mean, orchestras can love conductors for a period, and then there comes a time where even the greatest conductor can become, if not annoying to them, slightly sort of predictable or, or, or I can't think of the word. There, but there are also some wonderful upsides to it. I may have an orchestra in Australia, which is a similar size to the LMP, that I go to every year for 35 years, and it's the same there. I've seen people have children in the orchestra, come and go from the orchestra's leaders come and go, and uh, players in the orchestra have children. Just one or two occasions, the children grow up, you see them grow up and then become players in the orchestra themselves. And, uh, so it is like a family. And, and have you seen that here with LMP? Yes, uh, absolutely. Um, in fact, I've been, around, I mean, I've been, during my time with them, these 45 years, I've been associate conductor, um, I've been principal guest conductor and I'm now conductor laureate. Um, and somehow the relationship has gone on, probably because I don't do quite as much as a principal conductor would normally do. I find that with other orchestras around the world, you know, because I come in slightly less frequently, perhaps they get sick of me less quickly. <laughs> or maybe you freshen things up. <laughs> well, yeah, one has to, one, <laughs> one does have, have to try, you know, try and keep fresh with orchestras because it's actually quite a difficult life to be an orchestral player if you think about it too hard. I mean, they're, they're playing music which they adore in the way that somebody else is telling them to play it. And you're not going to get 50 people all agreeing with one particular interpretation. You have to put it over in such a way. Your confidence in it has to be such that they come along sometimes in spite of themselves. How do um, you think that you managed to persuade them then? Because you clearly persuade the consensus, otherwise you wouldn't have been doing it for as long as you have. Yeah, well, I think the thing is not to put your head down, to, to, to try and give at least the impression that you're also taking their 
feelings, they're playing into consideration, especially, obviously, in the, the woodwind group, it's slightly different, because they're, they're a soloists, they're the principal woodwind players. Um, it's more in the string sections where you've, you, know, you might have eight or 12 or in big orchestras, 16 first violins, all having to play at exactly the same time as the other 15. Which, if you think of it, if you and I tried to talk together with a sentence, if we tried to speak that exactly the same speed, intonation, um, and ensemble, so to speak, it's hard work. And it's going to be more hard work when there's more people doing it. Uh, yes, in a way, although, funnily enough, the more string players you have in a section, the, actually the more focused it can sound, funnily enough, because they can play less, and the, it, it, the, any slight inconsistencies get covered up because there are so many of them doing it. Um, but, I mean, the inconsistencies one talks about in a great orchestra are tiny. But the fewer you have, the more... Uh, uh, I mean, the least ideal is two first violins, for instance, because you, you just hear them both, no matter how good they are and how experienced they would be to play together. You could still hear it's just two violins because they wouldn't be... That's why we have... Uh, they wouldn't be exactly together. That's why we have so many in big orchestras. Margaret Thatcher... I, believe once came to an orchestra rehearsal and said what are we doing well are they all playing the same please why why do you need 16 people you know and it's a good question in a way because you wouldn't give 16 people one job in a company or something <laughs> was a conservative <laughs> yeah. um, um you said that one one of the ways that you persuaded them was not uh, having your head down but there must be other things that you do in order to to bring well, everybody general around. encouragement and the feeling that you're enjoying what they're doing at the same time as you're um, trying to get them to do what you want them to do, you know. It's an art. Conducting, if I've ever been asked to describe it, I think it's a bit of a conjuring, a magical art. It's a bit of a dark art. <laughs> because you are dealing, no matter what people will insist, you are actually dealing with a whole bunch of people trying to make them sound like one muscle almost. I wonder whether there's a bit of you that thinks that actually perhaps you don't know how it's done. I mean, obviously you know how it's well, done, but, but is it some, if, it's, if it's a dark no, you can art, have if it's a go. Wizardry, I mean, some, then... some people have magic in the way they talk to people, you know. That's, that's we, we all see in life. You can get somebody stand up and tell you terrible things, but somehow they'll do it with such charm other people, you just want to yes. stamp on them, don't yes. you? I mean, I, and you, you, list of those yes, people, yes, yeah. and you wonder how they can be so crass and and, and successful, insensitive. <laughs> yes. Well, the day of the conductor who could stand up and just fire people if he didn't, if they answered back or anything, and that can happen in an orchestra. I mean, these are people with lives who have stresses yes. which they're not supposed to bring to the job, but you they can't avoid it when you're spending six hours, nine hours a day sitting working on music, difficult pieces. Maybe your playing isn't in a, this year or that year, maybe not as great as it used to be with some people and it can pass and with some others it might not and you have to deal with that. You, you have to know almost as soon as you stand on a, in front of a new orchestra, one of the first things you, you get the feeling of is which players are, you can look at directly and get their best results. Others that you can't look at because if you look at them they get feel stressed how would you um describe the musicianship in this orchestra oh, uh, well, compared this to is, other orchestras that you work with this is an outstanding orchestra and it has a, a, a wonderful sound before you start they, they just you don't have to talk about mozart style on the whole um 
uh, or whichever or style, whatever piece they're playing, they, they know how to. Or you, you can just say, well, look, listen, that sounds a bit too much like Beethoven. Let's keep it Mozart, and they'll know exactly how to deal with it. Is that um, to do with the continuity of the players? So the, the fact that, I, that people have It is have the interesting in the thing about orchestras that the sound tends to continue. If you look at any of the great London orchestras, they all have slightly different sounds. The LSO, I've often described as like a sports car. It mm. sort of rips into action, and when the, the brass flare and things, the Philharmonia has a smooth, it's a bit more like, a, if you're using cars as an analogy, more like a, uh, I don't know, um, Rolls-Royce or something, a smooth, lovely ride. I mean, it has Never been power. in one. Never been in <laughs> one. <laughs> well, a Lexus or whatever, I don't know, Mercedes. <laughs> Good Mercedes. And... Uh, um, and they maintain those characteristics even though the players change quite a bit over the years. And that's the mystery about an orchestra and why it's terribly sad if, a, if an orchestra, a, a major orchestra, or really accomplished orchestra, is allowed to die because of that. So what are the characteristics of this one? This one, has this, this one has the fresh energy that Mozart needs in every note, but they know how to harness it for both piano... Uh, uh, intimate sounds and exciting, flaring uh, music like we're starting with uh, for this concert, the Kofiev um, Classical Symphony, which although of course it's based on Haydn Mozart period uh, in its form, it's still Prokofiev, so it needs all that um, wry humour and brilliance and virtuosity that you could, uh, and, and sharpness that Mozart needs to a certain extent, but it has to be in a tighter, slightly tighter box, you know. David Wilson. Uh, I was uh, the orchestral manager of London Mozart Players from uh, the 80s, really, middle 80s. Right. And uh, now here we are, 2019. I've just announced my retirement, and I retire from the orchestra after nearly 37 years. What so is the deciding factor for an orchestral manager to retire? I mean, well, I know how long I lasted in a similar role. <laughs> really? Well, I feel it's just time because I've dedicated my whole life to the orchestra. Uh, and uh, when Louise Honeyman and myself took over the orchestra all those years ago, we put all our energies and effort and time and finances into the orchestra. And Louise passed on about four years ago. And, uh, you know, I've been passionate about the musicians, about the London Mozart players. And especially when we became resident of Fairfield Halls in Croydon uh, all those years ago, um, we had our offices in North London, but part of the residency, the Croydon Council wanted the, the um, management to move into Croydon, which was great because it meant that we were more involved in the community and meeting all the business people, etc., etc. Uh, and your very tanned would suggest that either you've been on holiday or you tan very easily. 
No, this is all from Croydon, believe it or not. <laughs> Seriously. Because <laughs> I live in Croydon. Oh, well, is he? Oh, not right. far away. And, right. of course, uh, I enjoy Do you sitting have a nice the... garden? No, it? just a little area where I can sit up in the sun well, when I possibly can, if I find time to do that. Well, it's a great look. That, that's oh, thank you very much. Uh, what, what makes somebody want to work in orchestral management for that long? Really? Well, gosh, it's a tricky one because I met Louise all those years ago and um, I'm not musically trained in that sense, but uh, we got together and um, she felt that I had certain qualities of people management, basically. Orchestral management and dealing with situations, uh, difficult situations and having to deal with them in a calm and relaxed way. Uh, And um, so I started up with her. In fact, I used to work with Louise before we took over the London Mozart players. Right. In fact, we worked with Jane Glover uh, before then, and did lots of um, uh, concerts with her. Um, we also had our own orchestra title, which was the English Symphony Orchestra, which we sold to uh, William Bowton, I think it was, all those years ago. Yeah. So you used to... We used to manage that orchestra as well. I used so to we work for that orchestra. We, we, we that was my first job. It, was it? Yes. I drove the, uh, drove the orchestra van. In 1994, when William Bowton... No, I'm not joking. I I thought when somebody else mentioned your name, I was thinking, who the hell is that? I'm sure I recognise that name. Yes. Yes. So that was 1995 to 90... uh, 94 to 95. I didn't last very long. No, we we, we put all our energies into the orchestra because Louise used to do my job with Harry Black in the old days. And, of course, I did have the pleasure of working with Harry towards the end of his reign with London Mozart players. Wonderful, wonderful special character. Uh, I'm actually very fortunate because I have actually worked with all the music directors throughout the orchestra's uh, life in that sense. You've told me that you have to be very calm, deal with situations in a calm way. You've also surprised me to tell me that you don't have a musical background, yeah. which is quite unusual for orchestral managers. It is. That was, I don't. I was a police officer before then. Oh, probably. I see. That's where that comes from then. Yeah, probably, yes. Uh, what are you most proud of in your Gosh. in your role at LMP? So, m- so many things uh, I've uh, been you proud can, of. You can choose well, three. I, 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 I honestly, without thinking about it, I haven't. Uh, no, it's been a great pleasure, honour, and privilege to work, work with so many wonderful musicians, especially the musician, musicians that are in there today because of the opening concert of Fairfield Halls after refurbishment um, for about, I think it was close for about three, three and a half years. And we are the first concert of the orchestra to put on a concert uh, we're doing a gala concert tomorrow and that's a huge privilege and for me in particular because when we first became resident orchestra here all those years ago in the late 80s and now we're back as resident orchestra here I feel as I've completed the circle and that's an honor for me really is um, what is special about the hall do you think the hall itself is, has one of the best acoustics in the country, and that is why you've been into the hall, that they haven't changed much at all to the hall. They've changed, I think, put new seating covers on. But it is as it was all those years ago. I think it was built in the 60s, late 60s, wasn't it? Um, and they just got the acoustics right. And uh, it really is one of the best acoustics in the country. And uh, we're all very proud of that. Uh, what will you do next? What does what does David do well, when he retires? After all these years that I've dedicated my life really to the orchestra, my time, my energy, I just feel now I want time for myself, get my life back in many respects, <laughs> even though I've enjoyed my life with the orchestra. But I just feel I just want to 
to see all my fam my brothers and sisters down in Wales. I'm Welsh. Uh, go and see them more often. I have a brother out in New Zealand. I want to spend more time over there uh, with him. He's retiring next year. But go back to all these wonderful countries and cities that I've been to uh, with the orchestra for work. And it is extraordinarily fleeting visits. Well, they're they, they just a yeah, they, yeah. It gives you a taste of yeah. all these wonderful cities. So I'd like to go back and explore them in my own time now. Uh, you know, places I've been to China, I've been to uh, Japan, I've been to Brazil, m lots of places in Europe. Excuse me a minute. <coughs> Bless. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. And actually looking to the side, it almost feels like there's a crowd of people stood right there. Um, uh, is there any sadness about it? About leaving? When Louise passed on about four years ago, that was a huge red for me because we were so part of the orchestra, so much involved in the orchestra. Louise took over from when Harry wanted to retire all those years ago and she put her life and energy into that. And we worked as a team. And I think this is the most important thing. You're working as a team. The management are working as a team, not a, as an individual. So we worked very well together. We were very fortunate. And, uh, of course, when she passed on, she'd retired from the Yorkshire quite a number of years ago. Um, and that was a huge wrench for me. And uh, I still go through those grieving processes, really. But, yeah, but I feel now that uh, it, it really is time for me to step back. Uh, what do new orchestral managers need to do, do you think? What is your advice to those people who start in this particular work? Uh, very difficult one. I have a knowledge of um, oh, uh, about musicians, uh, right, musicians. Uh, also, it's have that calming influence because you're always, you're going to be confronted with situations which you haven't been aware of and uh, then you have to deal with them and um, deal with them calmly and get on with the job. And it, it, it's having that communication skill, I think, that understanding and working with people, people management, vitally important, I think, and that communication skill. Not only musicians, but that's conductors, soloists, venues, everybody. You're talking about empathy, actually, considering that you don't, you've said yourself that you don't have a musical background, actually, you're talking about empathy. Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> I'm flattering you. <laughs> I don't know, clearly you're not very comfortable with that. Um, I was reminded as well of where I recognised you from. Am I right in thinking that you got an award at the I ABO conference? The ABO award uh, uh, this January in Belfast. I seem to remember you standing up at the podium with a hanky. Or a serviette. Well, Did, were you taken by surprise? I was taken by total surprise because I knew nothing about it. And we were sitting around the table. And uh, Jenny Jones was making the announcement. She was presenting all the awards. And, and, and next minute, she was talking about an orchestra. And uh, somebody, an orchestra manager, had been in the business over 30 years, I think she said. And it all started sort of clicking <laughs> my mind. And... Um, one of my colleagues, Jenny, was taking a video of me, and I, I hate having my photograph taken. Oh, so uh, I was for the warning. <laughs> say, I was telling her, stop it, stop it, stop, stop it, you know. And, of course, what she was doing was videoing me for <coughs> the presentation. <coughs> and then um, it got closer to the time when she was saying, uh, she mentioned the orchestra. And uh, you might have seen it on, my, on the video that I was taken by total surprise. 
and I thought, what's going on here? <laughs> Did that give you the fear? <laughs> I wonder what uh, you uh, the fear. next minute, she mentioned my name, and so I just, just didn't believe it. So, of course, I had nothing prepared, no speeches prepared, whereas all the other uh, people mm. who got awards had their speeches prepared, and, they, they, you know. Uh, what is it like to receive that recognition? Because that's, oh, a, that's it's a, a moment. It's a huge honour. I say, after all these years I've worked with this orchestra, um, it's a huge honour and a privilege. It really is. I was quite overwhelmed by it all, really. And I can't remember what I said. It was very entertaining. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I was, was there. I no, it was, I was, it was, was very entertaining. Not least because you were not prepared. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so, and of course, uh, my colleagues knew about it for a long while. Uh, you know, for January, I think they must have known sometime in December. Swines. So they kept it very quiet, Swines. yes. Tell me who you are and what you do here. Uh, Neil Chandler, venue and artistic director of right. Fairfield Hall. And how long have you been involved? I've been on this project since November 2017, which doesn't actually, when you say it, seem that long no, ago, it but happen. it really is a very long time. Uh, what has happened in the past two years? Well, everything I came here thinking I was going to do uh, is very different to what we've ended up with, in a positive way, because you know, when you take on a role like this, you, you have ideas and plans of what you're going to do with the venue and the space. Right. By the time you take the job on and you listen to the community uh, and you, you take a walk around and you understand the spaces, not the spaces you've remembered before it closed, but the spaces that they're going to be when it reopens. You, you, know, you just reconfigure your, your plan, really. And that plan has evolved constantly over the 18-month period. So you are a Croydon, Croydon chap? Yeah. Well, my wife's a Croydon lady. Okay. We, we live just outside Croydon. I worked here in 2009 until 2011 as head of operations. Oh. So I had an understanding of the venue. I, I understood how it operated, which has helped me a lot, actually. Right. Let's, let's go somewhere. Take, yeah, take let's me somewhere where somewhere's changed. Because oh, I uh, came here. changed a bit. Um, so I mean, backstage has certainly changed a lot. Yeah, well, clean. Yes. Um, we've got, got a new so car smell. Yes, it? yes. Um, so we're in the Phoenix. Um, Phoenix Green. Look at that. So that's big. So this here, lovely that's semi sprung floor, lots of natural light. Um, this uh, used to be divided into three or four different dressing rooms. I think they called it the Crowham Room or something. Uh, way, way back in 1962, there was an artist's bar at the far end. But now you can see it's just one large space. You can do uh, warm-up dance classes here. Right. Got a grand piano in the corner there for conductors to warm up on. And, of course, some upright pianos that are waiting to be delivered to the dressing rooms directly above us. This space gets used for our Phoenix Piano Academy. Right. So we, we are very keen, alongside our Yamaha Music School, uh, to teach the next generation of musician. Tell me about the... Are you able to tell me a little bit about the history of the building? Built in the well, 1960s? Built in 90, yes, built in 1962. Um, Before the Festival Hall or after? Just I'm after not, the Festival right. Hall. We're very similar to the Royal Festival Hall. Had the same acoustician, uh, everything that wasn't quite right there, although that's a formidable building, so it doesn't seem right to say that, but uh, everything that wasn't quite right there, and the, 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 they got spot on here. You know, And our Phoenix Concert Hall is widely recognised as being the finest concert hall sound in London um, and, and one of the finest uh, in Europe. There's a, there's a thing about the building for me. I live in Lewisham, and this feels like a local concert hall and a far more sort of accessible, warm, inclusive destination compared to, say, the Barbican and the Festival Hall, which I love. I, you know, I love those places. But there is something about the design of the building that it still retains it's that smaller. sort of six. Well, it's smaller, first of all, but it still retains that 60s optimism. Yeah, I... Um 
I didn't have an office when I first started this job. Oh. So I spent, um, we, we didn't move Was into... Was that one of your ideas? Yeah, yeah. I office. must get an office. We moved into port cabins in April of this year. Oh. So over a year, for over a year we had no office. And for, for the first year it was just me. So in between meeting people and going to endless meetings, I would park up in a coffee shop and do some work. Um, completely off my face on caffeine by about three o'clock because in oh. coffee shops you have to keep buying coffee to let yes, them, so they'll let you stay. Um, we've resolved that problem here. I'll tell you about that in a moment. Right. Um, and then I bought membership to the Members Lounge at the South Bank Centre and I used to go there a lot and I used to enjoy it and I used to look at what was going on and get inspiration. And actually, I found those spaces really welcoming. Yeah. Uh, and, and I thought that's what we need a bit of here because we have got South London's largest arts centre here in Croydon. It hasn't been known as that for a long time, uh, but that's what it is. It's, it's South London's largest arts centre. It's here for the wider community. Uh, it has to be welcoming. It has to be inclusive because we're based in one of the most diverse boroughs in London with you know, 50, 52 or 54% of our population is uh, black or Asian. 48% uh, are under the age of 25 We've got a, and the programme has to reflect that? The, the whole building, the programme, everything we do has to reflect that. So that, that, that comes down to um, the staff members need to be reflective of the community we're in. The images on the walls need to be reflective of the community that we're in so that people feel welcome and they feel they've got a place here. All those very small details, they mean a lot. Uh, let's go to the foyer. Yes. There's some st I, so I went to the foyer uh, before I came in through the stage door, and the last time artist I was entrance, here... Artist entrance, that's a pound in the box. Is it? Is it's it really? artist entrance, it's not a stage door. <laughs> okay, fine, okay. One pound. I get the point. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't sent the briefing notes. Um, uh, but you're going to have to lead the way, because I'm completely will. Uh, where to next? Where would you like to show me next? Um, we're going to go up to level two, right. towards the uh, mid-stalls of the console. Were there people who needed to be persuaded locally? I don't know whether yeah, that's something that. you would have to do. Well, I think you, you need the buy-in of the local community, and that buy-in has... Yeah, it's been challenging. People just wanted to see the building open. You know, bear in mind, it was we had a few stops and starts. Um, yesterday, we had big queues at the box office and a bumper day of sales. Uh, you know, people are only persuaded when they see it happen, and I get that. You know, and, and I also understand that... You know, people thought it was going to close and never open again. And I, yeah, absolutely, lots of people. And I also, there were lots of people who also thought that um, it should, it should be exactly as it was before it closed. Oh, um, well, I'm glad it's not. Yeah, well, it, it couldn't <laughs> continue. It no. couldn't continue. The last time I was here, the chairs were quite tatty. They're not now. The chairs. They're are not great. as tatty. No. No, they're not tatty. No. They're lovely. Uh, you, you talked about how some people assumed that, or thought that it would never open again. Yeah. Does that suggest that, that there was some struggle? My research extends to seeing that the council... The Save Our Fairfield campaign. Well, no, I didn't see that, ah. actually. But, but my research extends to seeing that the council was going to invest 30 million. Is that right? Yes, so, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's the extent yeah. of it. But yeah, did, well, was there still some struggle? Yeah, there was. Because people wanted the building to be not totally closed down, they wanted it to be phased closure. Right. Which you couldn't do because the amount of work that had to be done. Uh, but of course, if it was phased closure, the trust that were operating the building prior to that would have been able to stay here. And, and the many people that sadly lost their jobs when the whole building had to close down and the trust closed down, you know, that wouldn't have happened. Right. Um, you know, and look, when people lose jobs, etc., that's not nice. Uh, and, you know, I wasn't part of that, so I can't make any comment on that. So I, but I do understand the raw emotions that, that, that there are around that. 
Um, but does this, I wonder whether as an administrator, as a manager, does that add to the pressure for somebody like you? Is there a sort of a, or do you, do you maintain a certain rationality? You sort of go, I understand all of that story, but I need to... Well, yeah, absolutely. Do you see what I mean? No, no, and you're absolutely right. Yeah, no, I, well, I, I do exactly what you just said. You know, I can't focus on what happened before, um, and I can't focus on the what-ifs and who might like that. And I've, I've, I go by raw data, and we've spent a long time studying the 2.1 million population that are in our catchment area, understanding where they go for entertainment, how much they pay for entertainment, what genres of entertainment they go to, and that's helped us decide how we're going to program this venue. So, yes, I can listen to comments that individual people make, and you take those on board, but at the root of everything I've done, it's been based on the data that's available to me, the conversations I've had en masse with the community, and where the conversation has been similar multiple, multiple times, that's the direction oh, we've gone okay. in. Yes, yes. so where there's a consensus. A consensus, yeah, absolutely. Um, I just, uh, this may seem slightly irrelevant, uh, but I've just spoken to somebody else who looks really tanned, and it turned out that he lived in Croydon. Did you say that you live in Croydon? Is it I just very yeah, uh, but it's, it's not just very sunny, sunny in yes, Croydon. Yeah, right, it is. Yeah. You look like you've just been on holiday. Do I? If only. <laughs> if only. I, actually, I did, about three weeks ago, I had a few days away in Spain. But, right. Yeah. Okay. Well, well yeah, clean I clean it. What have reactions been like when you've taken other people round? I mean, do you look out for a particular reaction other than? I mean, I imagine that nobody's going to say. Oh, I don't really like it. Are no, so, you know, the, the, the general um, reaction is very, very positive. Right. Some people go, well, what have you done? You've been closed for three years. And you'll say, well, because they'll say you put a bit of paint on the wall. The fact is every wall has come down at one point or another because all of the mechanical engineering in this building has been replaced. Right. To do that, they've had to rip out walls, get into all, the, all manner of cavities that were filled with asbestos, which then further delayed the project. So, you know, it's a huge, it was awful, awful. So a lot of the budget and a lot of the time has gone on things that no one will see, but you will enjoy the fully air-conditioned concert hall. So you'll get to experience, uh, you know, that. Uh, tell me, there's one other thing to ask you. Let's go in here, uh, which is... What interests me about Fairfield Hall is that I come from a classical music background and that's essentially the focus of the podcast for most of the time, but I'm interested in how in venues like this you see how classical music interfaces with the community and it sort of rubs shoulders with other arts and entertainment. I saw a poster in the artist entrance um, for wrestling, for example. Yes. So there is a whole, there's, yeah. a, there's a range of yeah, stuff. Yeah, that happens every quarter. And there's yeah. A music, yeah, there is, because it's, uh, because it's serving the community. Yeah, and, and you know, wrestling's got a, big, a very rich history of Croydon. It used yeah. to come live from here and be broadcast on ITV every yeah. Saturday lunchtime. Yeah. Um, so, of course, we we're going to keep that in the programme. But, yeah, theatre, live music, comedy, all those genres, uh, they, they've got to sit side by side. You know, we're building audiences and, and, and trying to push crossover. You know, we, we want people that go to one thing to attend other things yes. and we want to try and tempt them so with our Fairfield membership scheme and our subscription schemes we're trying to get people to uh, yeah, just take a chance you know jump in and try something else this is Tesco this is Tesco there we are is it a serve yourself bar I mean there's nothing uh, so there, there will moment. be a host here oh um, there will okay and I mean will look after you so like almost an like an airport, airport. yeah exactly. lovely <laughs> was that your idea that's the analogy <laughs> I used when I told them what I wanted yes. <laughs> right right Oh, well, I'm glad that we're all on the same page. Uh, anywhere else? Or is that it? Right, OK. Um, tell me what you're most proud of as you wander around. I'm most proud that we managed to open the doors on September the 16th, as we promised we would. 
um, I'm most proud that we've got a fantastic team of people working here that Croydon is in their blood you know they really feel passionately about the whole product you know they're not just here doing doing a job for some it's their career and they are seasoned professionals for others they're just starting their career and, and they will go on to have great careers and it's they started here and we you know, we are uh, a, a great team of people here all wanting the very best for this venue you know we are custodians short term of this venue and we're laying the foundations for the people that will take it over from us so we've been very um, conscious of that fact and wanting to make sure that whatever we do when we reopen this venue we do right so I'm very proud that we just got to this day you know there's things we've got to finish off and we'll be working as you do with any large capital project I, I like that though I like I like coming to a venue and hearing people busying themselves yeah, so I don't want it to be completely finished no. off you know. I mean, I'd, I'd like to come back tomorrow and see them cleaning the windows but yes <laughs> yes <laughs> But only because you said that you wanted to get them clean, not yeah. because I think that there's an awful lot that's got to be done. But that, exactly, it's, it's been a, it's been a mighty oh. project. One yeah. other thing, yes. whoever's whoever's idea it was to retain the 60s typeface, was that yours as well? Yeah, Are yeah. You taking the credit for everything. Well, it's just true, really. I wonder what that is. <laughs> oh, well, we. Um, yeah, it's so gorgeous. It's all gorgeous the wayfinding. Um, I'm a bit of a control freak, really. That's why. Are you? <laughs> no, no, not at all. It's just because I was on the project on my own for so long. You know, right. I, I sort of vis- had a vision of how I wanted everything to look. So I just made sure. That it makes happened. it an unusual project, though, and that's a lovely thing. Can you tell me what you had for breakfast this morning, please? Yes, I had porridge. It was awfully delicious. Was it? Did you make it yourself? I certainly did. That, that was emphatic. Oh, yes. Uh, with milk, water? Um, milk, milk, calcium, very important to get to my age. Okay, and your choice of, choice of sugar, is that honey? No granulate? sugar, absolutely uh, oh. no sugar at all. No. Wow, bit hardcore. Of, bit of sliced banana and some, and some walnuts. Okay, quite a brutal start to the morning. <laughs> um, that's very interesting. One day I'll edit all of these breakfasts together and it will make for a reasonably You could make a rather episode. good little thing, couldn't you? Um, sir, you know what the question is? I do. Uh, yes, I had uh, scrambled eggs uh, for breakfast. Right. Um, just, just plain and uh, two cups of tea because I felt like I needed... Right. needed Reinforcement. Reinforcement today. Is, uh, is today a sort of a nervous day for a composer about to hear their work played for the first time? I feel much more excited than I do nervous, actually. Oh, yeah, and I, I have absolute trust in uh, the amazing orchestra here. Well, I mean, he is here. The conductor is here, so I would expect you to say that. I mean, is it? <laughs> yes, I, if it was somebody else conducting, you could say, oh, I'm a bit worried about it, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> I think it would be terribly churlish if you did it in front of you. Um, tell us about the work. So, this uh, work is a celebration, really, of a few things. Obviously, the reopening of Fairfield, um, the 70th anniversary of the London Mozart players themselves. Um, And really from a personal point of view, it's a bit of a thank you for um, a really kind of early experience that I had with London Mozart players when I was just 11 years old, when they uh, came into my village uh, where I was at school. I'd just started secondary school and um, uh, LMP did this amazing outreach project called Walk... It's okay. An it's, amazing all <laughs> it's all ambient. It's all ambient. Don't worry. <laughs> um, 
So um, they did this amazing outreach project uh, in my village where they came into my school, but not just the school. They came into our local churches, pubs, and really kind of immersed themselves properly in a completely normal sort of village community. Um, I think like a lot of these things, I wasn't quite aware at the time of just how lucky we were to have this kind of experience and how rare it is actually to meet um, professional musicians so kind of up close and in an environment where they're not on a pedestal at all where it just seems like it's a perfectly normal thing to be to be in an orchestra and it's quite a cool job to have it seemed to me at the time um we did a performance of mozart's requiem uh at the sort of end of that week uh, and i was singing soprano in that uh which gives you some sort of idea of how long ago it was um and uh there was this kind of very strange thing that happened then a year ago when I met Julia, um, the executive director of LMP, uh, at um, the premiere of my own Requiem, uh, which I quite uh, ambitiously tried to put together last year. Uh, and we started talking after that and felt it was uh, one of these kind of occasions where you sort of meet again and you should really make something of that uh, because I, I told her at the time how formative that uh, LMP outreach project had been for me. And I don't want to make it sound as though I stalk you, but am I right in thinking that you won the BBC Proms composer competition? You also have studied at Cambridge. You've written something for an album that features on a previous podcast. Sorry, this is all information that's suddenly come to mind. Have, have I got that? Am I imagining somebody else? No, you, you have that got right? that right. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. you have okay. got that right. So, um, uh, yeah, I mean... I, so, actually, I, it did not not only is it is it a nice tie-in with the concert, but actually LMP's contribution to your musical development is has been critical because well, it sort of took you on a path. Definitely, because I think the only way that you can believe you can do something as strange as writing music and writing new classical music, I think, is to have people telling you that it's perfectly normal. And whether it is or not, I, I think maybe remains to be seen. But um, if if it seems like something that's for other people in some far off land, um, then I think you're never going to have the confidence as a sort of teenager to to have a go at it. That's very interesting. I hadn't. I've spoken to many composers. I've not heard anybody put it like that. I hadn't really seen it from that perspective. That you you actually need to be hearing people saying, "This is quite normal. Do carry on." Yeah, well, that's essentially what you're saying. I think so. Um, obviously, it's it's always going to be a, a quite a strange thing to do, but then I think because so, it's niche. Um, I mean, I think it's the fact that uh, within classical music, even most people kind of don't necessarily understand exactly what I do every day or what a composer does every day. Um, and I think it, it's that kind of air of mystery that that can be quite an exciting thing about it, but also can can make you constantly be thinking actually am i doing any of the right things should i be applying for this should i should i be working harder should i be uh, or, or doing something completely different sounds not unlike being self-employed <laughs> yes, I, <have> exactly. <laughs> yeah. I do do recognize quite a lot yeah. of that uh sir hillary yes. um were you who was conducting was hillary conducting that concert in you don't remember where was it um, it was in Swavesy. No, no, I've never been to Swavesy, I'm afraid. I should right. have been, clearly. Uh, but I, I, I absolutely can 
recognise what Alex is saying. I mean, this particular orchestra has a, a, a very powerful outreach program, which has been on for many, many years. And I conducted the orchestra for the first time. I realised rather alarmingly when I was thinking about it last week, 50 years ago, when I was actually slightly when you were about 14. I was actually rather younger than Alex is now, which is quite a reassuring thought, but not reassuring enough, really. Um, but uh, it, this orchestra has always had this kind of sense of of going to places that other orchestras won't go to or can't go to. Uh, it's very flexible about size and it's very flexible about repertoire and it's really committed to the proposition that classical music is not a kind of elitist uh, thing which only people with money should really be enjoying, which is one of the great fallacies which has been yes. very dangerously increased in the last 25 years. You know, having been around a very long time, uh, when I was conducting in the 70s, there was a sort of consensus that you might or might not like classical music, but it was a good thing for, for young people to be exposed to. And if they were not exposed to it, they were somehow being impoverished. Now, that remains true, but it's no longer a consensus. And, you know, all the stuff which I won't bore you with, you know, about the fact that music's not in the e-back, for example, just indicates that the current political class, never mind all this excitement about Brexit, which I will not refer to, has utterly failed to grasp that music is everybody's birthright, and musical talent is completely class blind. But it's becoming a middle class occupation because only those with money can afford to have lessons. And things like orchestras, organizations like orchestras, must commit to the proposition that we should try and push back on this all the time. But you're saying that LMP has always done that? It's always done that. Uh, and it, but it's more necessary now than it's ever been. And it has less money to do it than it used to have because, you know, money is very tight everywhere. Um, but I, the good thing uh, is that Alex's piece is extremely f full of energy and, and colour and bite, and younger people coming to listen to it will not think this is fuddy-duddy music I can't relate to. Mm. They just won't think that. Have you, have you heard it yet, Alex? I have not. I'm about to, oh. in, in mere minutes, I believe, uh, hear it for the very first time. Approximately 15, yes. Yeah, which is uh, pretty exciting. But I, I think the, 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 that kind of energy is something I really wanted to, uh, to have in, in the piece. I mean, when I... When I started writing it, I just heard that the Prokofiev was going to be sure, on the program, and sure. I think that's what that does to me. I mean, I can't imagine anyone hearing that Prokofiev and thinking, "Oh, you know, there's nothing going on no. for me here." It, it's well, that's a true. It's full of fun. It's equally true without giving us you know, a lecture on music. You know, mm -hmm. to Symphony Forty One of Mozart. I mean, you know, the thing, the great, not the great lie here is that somehow this is something which you have to be touched by a music fairy to understand. It's complete rubbish. I don't know any music fairies, I have to say. I, are you, are you aware of what I you know, know them it, in Croydon? No, no, uh, well, Croydon might be full of them. It's right. a very cultured place. But, but no, I, I think the reality is that you know, all you need to do to learn to love classical music is to listen. Hmm. Now, the difference between listening to this and listening to something from popular culture lasting four minutes is it takes a bit more effort and a bit more time. And in, in an instant world where, you know, the pot noodles become the staple diet, people are not always prepared to give it the time it needs. But the truth of the matter is that if you could get the entire population of Croydon into the Fairfield Hall and chain them to the seats and play them a Mozart symphony three times with a break for, you know, the lavatory and some food, at the end of those three times, a very large number of them would understand something of why it was worth going. You have quite a hardcore approach to the concert experience. I do. You're, you're proposing that we, we chain the audience to the I certainly and only think let them that out schools should start from the proposition that their job is to in hugely encourage kids to approach this with an open mind and see what it really says to them. And what we tend to do is to say, no, no, what the kids want is, is you know, Afro-Caribbean music. We're going to play them that because that's what they're going to like. 
Well, it's perfectly true. They will like it, and some it's very good. But you are denying them access to a whole raft of stuff that they should have access to, and they have a right to have access to, and which they would have access to, for example, in Germany, and they don't have access to as they used to here. And that's very serious, and that's one of the reasons opening this great hall in Croydon is very important. When the hall closed, there were those who thought it might never reopen as a classical music venue, but it has, and that's what music's like. You have got a fantastic radio voice, haven't you? Did you know that? Well, I had did my own classic FM programme. So did you? Oh, did you? Yes, oh, yes, this is really embarrassing. Not something you know, fine. Well, it was a long time ago. You probably weren't okay, born. I prob- it well. was called Masterclass. And with my orchestra from Milton Keynes, we took music to pieces in the studio, and then we played a complete performance at the end. It was on Sundays at 3 o'clock. Oh, I'm And it was paid sorry. for by Cross and Blackwall, who were actually in Croydon. Right, so I, I'm I really sorry that I didn't realise. But it, it did come to a halt. <laughs> I think it actually finished in 1996, so you probably were still in school then, weren't you, actually? Uh, that's very kind of you to say. I had just finished university yeah, and I'd started yeah, in the it. job. You're very good at that. You should work in PR. <laughs> You've been listening to the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast, available on Spotify and Audioboom. To get in touch, please tweet at Thoroughly Good. You can also follow Thoroughly Good on Facebook and read the blog at thoroughlygood.me. <laughs>